may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the text that Bill just read for us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, how grateful we are once again to come together on this day, the first day of the week, in the warmth of the fellowship of our brothers and sisters, our eternal family, in your presence, Father, as our, our forever Father and our Creator. And we pray, Father, that You will bless us in this hour with a greater knowledge of, of, of Your Word, a greater capacity for faith, a, a, a deeper, more uh, tremendous hunger for opportunities to glorify You in our life, and with courage, Father, and, and with, with, with fortitude to, to approach each day knowing that there are resources and riches and treasures available to us, not only to live above the line of mediocrity in this life, Father, but, but to do so in, in such a way that regardless of the events that, that swirl around us, we, we, we flourish. And that You give us a certain kind of poise and a buoyancy in, in the turbulence that we meet on, on uh, certain occasions and in certain kinds of circumstances. So as we study this particular text, Father, our, our prayer is that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story about a, a Sunday school teacher, little, little kids, and uh, she walked into the, uh, the classroom one day. She had stepped out for just a minute, had walked back in, only to find a couple of the little boys that were in her class that had gone over to the cabinet and were trying to break into it so that they could steal candy out of that cabinet that she would give to kids in the class when they memorized things or good behavior and these kinds of things. And she walked in, the boys saw her and put their hands quickly behind their back and got very sheepish. And the teacher thought that this was a great opportunity for her to, to instill in these boys some, some scripture. So she said, do you know what the Bible says to thieves? And one of the little boys looked up at her and said, Today you will be with me in paradise? <laughs> you know, it's not just Scripture that can bring out an unexpected response. Sometimes our lives can do the very same thing. Which brings us to our text that Bill read to us just a couple of minutes ago. This particular text in 1 Peter chapter 2 brings us to a new section in this letter that really deals with how, how do you live as the people of God? If you've been born again, you are a part of, of God's kingdom. You are a people of God. The question then is, how do you live in a world as the people of God, a world that is sometimes hostile to your faith? How do you live in a culture that has a different worldview or a different view of things from the way that you see things as it, as it has been taught to you and shaped in your, your thinking by God? How do people who have been born again, to use Peter term, Peter's terminology from chapter 1, live among people who need to be born again? Well, there's a couple of insights in these two verses that I want to share tonight. The first is, you know, the, the thing that you never stop doing, the thing that you always do is to live that public life. The Christian life is a public life. And Peter says in verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. What he's saying in terms of the, 
the, the born-again experience is that, that internal experience where you're changed, where you're saved. Your heart is now different. It's been impacted by forgiveness and God's presence through the Spirit and God's Word. That internal experience of the new birth becomes public. It becomes something that people will see. They'll see your good deeds. They'll see that you, you know, that there is something that has happened on the inside of you that is that has come out. You will be doing things that are visible that that show them that something different in your heart, in your soul, has come about. Uh, the same kind of thing Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter one. He says, you know, your faith in God has become known everywhere. People all over that particular part of 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 uh, of, of of Asia had become acquainted with what was happening in the Thessalonican church. And then Paul continues, Therefore we do not need to say anything about it. They tell, verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You know, one of the things that, that we tell people when, when they become Christians, when they become disciples of Jesus, they're baptized, they have repented, they have come to that place in their life where their, their life, you know, they, there's a fork in the road and they've made a decision and they're going in direction of God. That that kind of new birth will bring about visible changes in your life. When you're born again, your dog will see it. When, when you are born again, the secretary in your office, in your colleagues, they're going to see that difference in you. The cashier at the HEB will see a difference in your life. That person that always takes your order at the drive-thru, at the Whataburger or the Sonic, it's going to note a difference in you. And what they're going to see, what they're going to notice, is that you're less irritable, you're less impatient, you're less volatile in temper, you're less cruel. There are things that will be seen in your life. And so you ask yourself the question, maybe as a test, about this new birth and this visibility of the faith, do you treat people of other races fairly? Do they see that kindness in you? Do they see it? Does your faith help you to face death? Does it help you to handle trouble differently? People are looking at you. And what Peter says is that at judgment, on the day that God visits us, they will glorify God because, they, what they, because of what they saw in you. That you were able to draw them in because what was changed on the inside, that internal change went public. At judgment, there are going to be a lot of people who glorify God because they saw someone's changed life through their good deeds, through their public life. They saw something remarkable in that person. They saw that person's life as an invitation to a better life. One of the things that we say from time to time is that, you know, a lot of times your life is the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. And so the first point that, Paul, that, that Peter makes about, about living in a world that sometimes is hostile to your faith is that, hey, that life has got to be public. And then the second thing he says, that Peter says, is that public Christian life will bring conflict. The public Christian life will bring conflict. The life of a Christian is public. It's visible. That internal, invisible has become visible. But the response will be sometimes, not all of the time, conflict. There will be at times people that are blessed by you, and because they're blessed by you, they're going to be attracted to the gospel. But there are going to be times when people look at you and they see your life. And the fact that you believe that you know what God's will is, and that you believe that there is a truth that rises above individual relativism, that by that truth all people will be judged. And by that, by what they see, what they hear you say, they're going to be repelled and they're going to be repulsed. 
I mean, the truth of the matter is the more you live like Jesus, the less likely people are going to be neutral to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, notice, in fact, circle that word on your outline, though. It doesn't say if they accuse you. It says though they accuse you, meaning they will. They will come after you. And they will try and find a bias against you. And some of it will be completely unfair. But that's just exactly the way that it was with Jesus. People were always conflicted in their response to Jesus. Jesus was an enigma. And, and so we will be to people as well. There's a scripture over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that for the longest time, I mean for years and years and years, and I'm not sure I still understand everything that, that Paul is trying to say. But over here in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them what? Foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Verse 15. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Now again, I'm not sure that I've been able to discern everything that this verse is teaching us about the kingdom of God, but I think at the, at the heart of it, at the core of it, what Paul is saying is that a Christian comes to an understanding of what's going on around him in life. That because of God's Spirit, because of God's Word, that there's, there's now an explanation for events. Now, we may not know the motivation, be able to discern exactly why somebody did something, but we have an explanation for the events that are around us. We have an understanding of human beings. We're not shocked by suffering, which is the opposite of the response that you see a lot in, in our culture and around the world when there's some kind of tragedy or something that's unfair, something that doesn't make sense. What do people say? Things like this are not supposed to happen. That this is, that this is unfair. And what that, what that should say to us is that their worldview, their way of interpreting, their way of explaining the events around them is flawed, that it's specious because it is not an explanation of life as it is. Now, people who have the Spirit, according to Paul, are able to make the right kinds of judgments. That is, there's a kind of wisdom that allows them to discern what it is that they see transpiring and unfolding in front of them. But they are not subject to any man's judgment. That is, people don't get them. Christians who have the Spirit are able to understand the world biblically. It makes sense. They're able to make judgments. That is, what they see and the explanation that they have for the things that they see, it makes sense. It fits. But they themselves don't make sense to the people around them. And when we understand that, that we are an enigma, the same way that Christ is an enigma, there is a poise that, that comes to us and a buoyancy that comes to us when we find ourselves in circumstances that are not optimal. And we're not shocked because we believe what others think is crazy. I mean, think about, think about our worldview for just a minute. I mean, we believe that God has come to us. That God speaks to us. We believe that the world is filled with supernatural forces that are fighting over souls. We believe that Jesus will come again at the end of time. We believe that that Christ will judge each human being. 
Now, in the eyes of much of our culture, that is seen as, as nonsense. It's seen as crazy. But that is our worldview. And it's a worldview that helps us to make sense. In fact, it is wisdom. It does make sense. It is the right explanation for the way that the world is and why it is the way that it is and why these events transpire and unfold the way that they do. People who look at our public lives are either going to be drawn in because of the good deeds and the winsomeness and the handsomeness and the beauty of that life that has been transformed by, by the power of God or they are going to think that we're crazy and are going to be repelled and repulsed. So how do, you, how do you have that buoyancy? The last thing I'll say tonight is we cling to a promise. That promise is found all the way back in verse 6 of that same chapter. And this is where Peter says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now here's the way that the end of that verse is put in the King James. It says, He that believeth on Him shall not be what? confounded. It's not a word that we use a lot these days. Kind of an older word. Confounded though is a very interesting little word. It means confused or stunned or defeated. It can mean bewildered or even embarrassed or frustrated. It can mean put to shame. And what Peter is saying here is that the one who trusts in Jesus will never be confounded. As a person of faith, you can be positioned to never be confused or to be defeated or to be bewildered in this life. Now, it's not automatic. But it is a possibility for the disciples of Jesus. I, when you think about Jesus Himself and you think about the, the events that transpired in His life, I, I mean, sometimes we, we draw back in horror at just the unfairness of what happened to Him. The most sensitive man, the most perfect man who ever lived. And because He was perfect and because He was the most sensitive man, the more it hurt Him. And the more it crushed him to be unfairly treated. Now, his family did not get him. You go to Mark chapter 3, they thought that he was out of his head. And the reason was because he had decided to move out of Nazareth and to move to Capernaum and, and, and the things that he was teaching. In John chapter 7, his brothers challenged him to go to the festival because they didn't really believe in him. But if he was the Messiah, he ought to go and be able to make himself known. His closest associates deny him and abandon him. How unfair is that? And the recognized hierarchy in that culture, the pushers and the movers and the decision makers, they, they were completely rejected. And they said that his works were empowered or enabled by the power of the devil himself, Beelzebub. And the very culture that had been prepared for centuries, for hundreds of years to receive him, the very culture that rejected him. And not only did they reject him, but they subject him to an unfair trial. And he's railroaded before the Romans. And he's executed in the most demeaning, brutal, and cruel way that the ancient world could, 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 could imagine. The crucifixion. And then on top of that, one of the last things that he sees is his mother's broken heart as she's weeping her eyes out in pain over what's happened to him. But Jesus is not confounded. He is not confounded. In Philippians chapter 2, because of His faithfulness, because He, as that enigma with a mission to save all of humanity, was, was steadfast in the way that He approached His life to the glory of God. Verse 9, God exalted Him 
to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is not an enigma. But that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when you think about all of that that He went through, I mean, you know, to be rejected by a people that had been prepared by God Himself through the prophets, through the patriarchs, through the Word itself being inspired and delivered to human beings, and through those, the, the preaching of those prophets, that very culture that had been prepared to receive Him, the very culture that rejected Him and said that He was mad and out of His head and that He was actually an agent for the kingdom of darkness. And you see how He set His face towards His mission and was never, never, ever, ever without grace. Even when He was meeting the the best of people like a Nicodemus in John chapter 3 or the worst of people in that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, He had the grace and the poise and the buoyancy and the grace and the truth to be able to minister to those people and to bring them to faith by His goodness, by who He was, the beauty of His heart. And when we see that, we're changed. And when we see that, we're challenged. And we know that we too do not have to be confounded in this life, living it according to the principles and the precepts of the kingdom, the Bible, that we can live it in such a way that we are not confounded ourselves. And so Paul says to the church in Colossae, that since you've been raised with Christ, You set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in what? In what? glory we live a public life those things that have happened on the inside of us i mean when we decide to walk by the spirit there is just absolutely no way that all of that fruit that is going on in the inside is somehow not going to blossom out there should be a love and a gentleness and a kindness that fruit of the spirit should be evident it should be a testimony to the internal change that has happened in our heart and soul and mind because of the grace of god and people are going to see that and they're either going to be drawn in to the beauty of that They're they're going to look at your life and see the beauty in it, the way that they see the beauty of a a landscape, whether it's the mountains or a sunset or the seashore. They're going to see the beauty of it. And they're going to be drawn in. And your life is going to be that Bible that perhaps they've never read, but it's going to bring up those questions. You know, why is it that you're so different? You're an enigma to me. But I want to know because I want that kind of life. Or there's going to be some kind of of, of fear that's going to be registered in the heart of those that see it and they're going to be fearful of that beauty. And they're going to try to come up with some kind of bias against you. But that, that, that Christian life is a public life. And that public Christian life at times is going to bring out some kind of a reaction. But that reaction should never confound us. That reaction should never, ever, ever, ever knock us off our feet. Because we look at Jesus. 
And if we live as He lived, then we're going to be treated as He was treated. And we can still, through the power of God in our life, through that internal change, being born again, not react as the carnal man, the man without the Spirit, but to react in a way, even in, in heroic ways at times, with a beauty that only can be described as, as a work of God in our life. Knowing that we too, as He was exalted, will find our place in glory with Him. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and perhaps there are some ways that we can minister to you tonight. We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that we can help you live your life of faith in a public way, to do a better job of that, to help instruct you, encourage you to do it. If there is, if there's some ways that we can teach you and, and share with you the beauty of the Gospel tonight so that you can find that, that internal change that leads to a public change in your lifestyle that is going to bring about a change in the way that you respond to all of the events around you by being baptized and repenting and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as Ben leads us in the song. Let's stand and sing together. I just want to be where you are.